Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So we're at the end of our series on the Not-So-Minor Prophets, the last book of the Twelve, Malachi, the last book of the entire Old Testament. Pray with me if you would. Father God, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to understand your word. We, we need this. Lord, in your word, you describe the gospel. You describe your word as the power of God. I am not ashamed of the power of God, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, says Paul in Romans 1. 1 Corinthians 1, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Lord, we feel so powerless in so many ways, so disconnected. Would you change that? Would you give us an understanding of your word, access to the power of God itself in our lives, that we might live lives that honor you? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Lost dog. Doesn't just grab your heart whenever you see those words on a, on a poster stapled to a telephone pole by the traffic light. And underneath the words, you see this picture, a sad picture of the lost dog. There's always contact information and sometimes an offer of a reward. If you have a Ring doorbell, then you get notifications all the time like this on your Ring doorbell app. Lost dog. Help us find our lost dog, Fido. We love him. He's a good dog. He's very friendly. He needs his medication. Reward if found. The thing is, Fido may or may not know he is lost. He may have just followed a scent somewhere or just wandered off like dogs and people sometimes do. And he can't read. He can't read the paper posters with his picture on them. He doesn't understand this. He, he can't watch the internet postings that may even have a video of him doing something cute. He does not know the extent of his owner's care and concern and angst, their heartbreak, especially if there's children involved. He, Fido, does not know and cannot be aware of all the effort going into rescuing him, and he is not helping. He's not on the team. He's the one who wandered off and got lost. So spiritually, we can resemble this lost dog. There are parallels to salvation here, especially if we give our lost dog story a happy ending. And if we wanted the story to match salvation even more, we would have to show that the owner, God, knew where Fido was the whole time. We get lost. We are lost. The people of God, in receipt of all 12 
of the prophetic proclamations of the 12 not-so-minor prophets were lost in one way or another. You could sum up the message of all 12 in one sentence, a form of which is found in many of their writings. Return to me and I will return to you. There are many key verses in Malachi, but perhaps the verses that describe the author's intent and really lay out the content of the book in, in the best way are Malachi 3, 6 through 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So Malachi is like God's lost dog poster in many ways. Written 440 to 400 BC, it is the last of the Old Testament books in every way. It's a bridge book too, because there are things in Malachi, specifically pertaining to John the Baptist, that tie Malachi to the New Testament and to the Gospels. It's written to God's people, this book. God is not lost. He's not frustrated. He can't be. His people are. His people are not acting like his people. No surprise there. And their mistreatment of him basically takes three forms. Number one, they offer blemished sacrifices. Number two, the divorcing of wives by husbands. And three, the robbery of God through the withholding of tithes and offerings. In other words, they cheated God in their relationship to him, in their relationship to each other, and in their relationship to his blessings. In the ESV Study Bible, which I like to quote all the time, it says this concerning the theme of Malachi. Malachi's contemporaries may have been free from blatant idolatry, though see chapter 2, verse 11, and relatively orthodox in their beliefs, but theirs had become a dead orthodoxy. They were all too ready to make ethical compromises and to dilute the strenuous demands of proper worship. In response to the cynicism and religious melee of his contemporaries, Malachi's prophecy comes as a wake-up call to renewed covenant fidelity. So that's the technical term of what it means when God tells his people to return to him. It's a wake-up call to renewed covenant fidelity. God is saying, get back here to his people and get real. He will find and retrain his lost dog. Return to me and I will return to you. He's talking to his people here. And that's why we can misread it. That's part of why we can misread it because we can look at this out of context and we can think that it suggests a two-way street. Right? Our minds go there. We can, we can see this as Meeting God halfway. One hand is washing the other. We're meeting God 50-50. If we say we're sorry, then he will say he's sorry, and we'll make up and be friends again. God plays his part. We play our part. Fair is fair. This is a big mistake, and it causes bigger problems. Because if 50-50 is our perspective, then we will not be able to understand the Bible, and we will be deaf to the gospel. The truth is that God has never left us. He never left you. If you wonder about that, go to Psalm 139, where it talks about 
how the psalmist cannot flee the presence of God, whether he goes up to heaven or down to hell or to the far reaches of the earth. Wherever he goes, God is right there. So the truth is, he never left us. He never left you. And furthermore, the truth is, you could never return to him anyway on your own, not without his help. You never would return to him without his help. You would never want to return to him without his help. You and I are worse than any lost dog. We know we're doing the wrong thing when we run away from God. Worst of all, that's why we run. Because we know it's wrong. And we want to do what's wrong. We like doing what's wrong. God alone causes us to dislike it. And this is how we are to read his call for us to return to him. No 50-50. Not even 99-1. There is no parity between us and God, between his work and ours. We mistakenly think there is. Sometimes it's as if we think that since God's son came down to earth out of love for us, then we ought to go off to heaven out of love for him. We must decide to become divine as he became human. We decide to go up to heaven and, and we've, we, we're going to do it in our own strength and we've got our, 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 our plan in hand. And, and, and this thinking is pretty common throughout Christian history and the Christian church. And the Bible calls it, to sum up what the Bible would say about it, theological insanity. It doesn't work. There is only one God and none of us are him. We are nothing like him in any way. We play no active role in our own salvation. We do less than any lost dog when it comes to our own rescue. So this is extracted from Malachi 3.7. Let's just leave that on the, the screen for a moment and then consider how it connects to the rest of the book. Let me just read to you the first five verses of the book, the first five verses of Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his whole country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, another word for Esau, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So Jacob is another word for Israel. It was renamed that. And the reference to Jacob and Esau here, it's not about how God is being mean or unfair to Esau. Because the fair thing to do would be to condemn us all. Right? Isn't it the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.10 that says, there's no one righteous, not even one? Later on in that same chapter in Romans 3, 3.23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So praise God that God is not fair. God is merciful, and that's the point. That's the surprise, the head-scratcher, 
the wonder, the miracle of his love. Prophecy takes time to read rightly. These are crushed and defeated people, the crushed and defeated chosen people of God. They're hearing from God again, from yet another prophet. They're hearing from God that he loves them and will not give up on them because everything around them and history itself for generations now suggests that God is done with them. And God says, I am not done with you. I will never be done with you. I am with you and I will carry through to completion this good work that I started. I love you. I have loved you, right? So he's saying, I'll fight for you. You're going to make it. And that's the point for us as well as we trust in him. We trust in him all the way as we receive and rest on what he did for us on the cross. He defeats our enemies. He did that on the cross. He loves you. He loves us who believe. Like he loves Jacob. It's a surprise that he would love us. We can't explain it. We can't defend it even. He loves us. And he won't give up on us. Ever. Trust him. But, now that you know he loves you, and you've heard it again, why do you still do things you know he doesn't want you to do? Why do you still like to do things you know he doesn't want you to do? The Bible's counsel on that is stop it. Stop it. After the verses I just read, the first five verses of the book, comes verse 6 of chapter 1. It's an anchor for us. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So prophets represent God to people. They speak from God to people. Priests represent people to God, and these priests represent God. All the people despised his name. All the people in this situation, the priests started it, though. And so we have three categories of despising his name, despicable priests, Despicable husbands and despicable children. Let's look at the first. Maybe too, informa- too much information about them all. But his name is despised by priests in Malachi 1, 7 through 2, 9. And here you see blemished sacrifices being given. This is a no-no spoken against in earlier books in the Old Testament. We've got to have perfect sacrifices. Of course we do because all the sacrifices foreshadow the one perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. A sacrifice without blemish because the blemishes represented sin. So he was crucified for our sins and it works for us because he had no sin. And that ties the whole Bible together. And that's really important to God. It never stops being important to God. You can always imagine God thinking of his son when he issues these teachings, these these commands that the sacrifice has to be perfect. And the the priests are just trying to make a buck because this this mangled animal might as well sacrifice it because this one's pretty and I can make some money on this one. And that there's the cynicism. 
It becomes commercial. Economic considerations override spiritual commands. Nothing new under the sun. In the middle of this, in the middle of this section, 1729, we have 111 that shows us his standard for his own glory and our worship of him. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Next we have despicable husbands. His name was despised by husbands in Malachi 2.10 through 2.17. Broken covenants were the opposite of and profaned God, just as broken sacrifices were the opposite of and profaned God. And you have a few verses there about men who married inappropriately, and it can sound a little confusing because it talks about foreign wives, and it's not about somebody falling in love with somebody from another country or that has another religion, that kind of thing. It's darker than that and deeper than that. It isn't about the woman at all. It's about the, the man, the chosen man, the, the person who ought to have a, a solid faith in the God of the Bible, now abandoning the God of the Bible, and that's all goodness, for idols. And so it's really idolatry. And in the Bible, it's, we, we look at things on, on a spectrum, but the Bible has, has a different way of presenting truth. There's good and evil. There's not really gray area between. We love the gray area. We want to live there. We want to play with that. And boy, it gives us a lot of flexibility to do all kinds of things, right? Yeah, the Bible offers scant, little, gray area. Believe me, I've searched. I've looked. It's not there. Amen? It's not there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we invent and imagine gray area. And so, uh, these are people who are, who are going for evil. They're, they're, they're leaving the light and going for dark, and then the, the, the marriage to uh, this, this, this person outside of the covenant is symbolic of that. He, he weighs harder on the abandonment of marriages to covenant wives by these husbands apparently for aversion or incompatibility or something like that. This offends God because it's, it's against his purpose for marriage. And, and divorce, writ large, is really symbolic of all that God is against. Not just, when we talk about divorce, we often think of a marriage between a husband and wife, and then we think of all the legal stuff and the, the kinds of things we see all around us, and so many of you have experienced in one form or another. But divorce means to be separate. And God sent his son because sin was just doing its work of separating us from each other, separating us from God, separating us from enjoying the blessings. We chase these blessings outside of God, and we can never enjoy them. Divorce, divorce, divorce. God offers the opposite of that. Reunion, renewal, reconciliation in Christ. So keep that in mind. We're not just reading about rules. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. The rules are there, but it's bigger than the rules. It's, it's the spirit of the law is here in the, the statement of the law through the mouth of the prophet. This verse, 2.16, because marriage really represents all our human relationships. This is powerful, an anchor for us. 
For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So over the years, English translators have struggled with this verse. The word hatred is in there about God hating divorce or divorce being like hatred. And the translators here are are working with this phrase, covers his garment with violence to to express what the Hebrew uh, communicates. It's a bad thing. You don't want this. So here we are. We're in the middle of Malachi. You got that last word there, second to last verse in chapter 2, and it says, do not be faithless. That's another way of saying, return to me. Return to me. And then chapter 3 begins with this unveiling of part of God's grand plan for all his people, for all time to return to him. As Malachi makes a specific and direct prophecy which would be fulfilled by none other than John the Baptist. Malachi 3, 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to the rest of the passage. A few more verses down. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts so that's a larger picture encapsulating the ministry and and the judgment really of God through John the Baptist and it shows you what God cares about he cares about us treating each other well we're to treat each other well big surprise it would seem oh that's part of being a Christian I, I am to treat people well I'm to to, to love them as myself. I'm to love the stranger as myself. I'm to love my enemies. It's all there. And that leads us back to our key verses. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that's why you're still alive. Amen? Amen. Yeah, that's why you're not toast. That's why you're not gone. Blasted away. Removed. Exterminated. Wiped out. That's that's the feel of God's mercy. We don't deserve it. Oh, boy, we we have work to do here because we are disciples of entitlement. We believe that we deserve so much. And... The problem with this is whatever we have is not enough. Don't we deserve more? Every one of us is walking around thinking that. Don't I deserve more? We're thinking that with everyone in our lives. I deserve more from you. You should be doing more for me. You should be doing more. Everyone should be doing more for me. What's wrong with you people? I am entitled. And that 
blinds us to the mercy of God. When you know you don't deserve your next heartbeat, and God has settled it. It's, you know it. You, you know you don't deserve to wake up tomorrow. You didn't deserve to wake up today. You don't deserve the next breath, even if it is a little Canadian and smoky. You don't deserve it. No. You know. Then, when you take that breath, when you feel that heartbeat, when you wake up that next morning, now, 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 you know the mercy of God. You know the goodness of God. Yes, thank you. Now that thank you is sincere. You mean it. You're grateful. Problems and all, challenges and all, disappointments and all, whatever they may be. Thank you, Lord. I'm the same. That's good news. You're good. You're still good, God. You're, you're, you're still the creator. You're still the redeemer. You're still all the things the Bible says you are. Yes, I am. I do not change. And therefore, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say to me, how shall we return? So let's keep in mind that God's mission is saving his chosen. He is how they are saved. He is how they shall return. He will not lose one of his own. Not one will be consumed. And Jesus reminds us of this. In the Gospel of John, in, in 6.37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. And just a few verses later, in 6.44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up. At the last day. And so it turns out that just as we cannot decide to be born, we cannot decide to be born again. Oh, we say we can, we think we can, but then when it happens, we realize that we can't decide. Not before he decides. We decided on him because. He decided on us and in our favor. We love him because he first loved us. We want him because he first wanted us. We choose him because he first chose us. He is the because, the because, the first cause always. And he's causing it to be, and that's important. Because you, you, you know that you don't have the ability to obey this command. Christ is your ability to obey God's command. He is your returning to him. And you rest in him. You receive him. You come to him as he commands you. By the way, come to me is not a suggestion. Come to me all you are weary and burdened. Are you obeying him? You weary person, you burdened person. Look how weary you look. And the rest of you burdened, and then some of you both. Right? You know it. I have eyes, even though I have glasses and they're kind of cloudy right now. I can see it, and you can see it in me too. Come to me. Come. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing. Our active obedience follows our passive obedience, if you will. 
He does it. We rest on Him. We receive Him. He does that. And then we rise in the power that He gives us to rise. He does that. Romans 9.16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So all that desire, all that effort, all of that. I'm trying so hard. I'm so tired. It doesn't depend. It's not working because it doesn't work. That way of living. And it's based on a lie. Live based on the truth. That God loves you, wants you, chooses you. That God will keep his promises. That God is not lost and he will find you. Return to him as you realize this. Return to him by realizing this, by resting on the fact that he never left you in the first place, that Psalm 139 is true. I know, I know. Our human experience of returning to him is just running to him out of breath, hands flailing in the air as we run to him, tears running down our cheeks, and we throw ourselves into his arms. However, this experience is only possible because God has never left us. He has never rescinded his claim on us, never released us from his hand, never dropped us. He loves us as he always has loved us, and he always will return to him. He will not be robbed of you. He will not be robbed at all. And that brings us to the third category of despicable in Malachi. I know, a lot of information. It's that kind of book, all right? That's what it is. It's the Bible. It's got a lot of stuff in it, all right? It's the hardest stuff you have to deal with in life too, right? Other things are hard, not this hard. Other things are important, not this important. Amen? All right, here we go. I know you weren't even complaining, but just in case you were, I cut you off. That's what I did. All right, here we go. His name was despised by his children in Malachi 3, 8 through 3, 18. The broken offerings were the opposite of and profane God, broken in half. That's, you know, that's the idea there. Uh, verse 8 begins, will man rob God? And, and here's the rub. And, and you can see it when you read verse 17. I, I, I put it in a sentence here. God who treasures us, C317, us who would be trash otherwise, and we know it, now receives from us trash, in lieu of the treasure he is due. It ought not be. And that does good work in your spirit. That's not guilt. That's not shame. No, that's, a, that's the Holy Spirit saying, come on. And, and the response of the believer, this is the common response of all believers, seasoned believers. God, I... I want to do better by you. I want to give you a better gift. I want to give you a better day. I want to be a better father and a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a, a better son, daughter, a better brother, sister, a better witness, a better friend. You deserve, you deserve that. And yeah, you have that feeling. You're like, and it's not going to go away. You can't, you can't somehow get rid of that. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. And that's, What's being talked about here, that's what the Holy Spirit is creating through Malachi and relying on. The Holy Spirit is relying on that being your response. Like, oh, 
No more blemished sacrifices. No more broken covenants. No more half-hearted offerings. I want to give you my all. Ah, you've created in me a desire to give you my all. And who is this that has created this desire? Here's a verse in the context of these verses. Chapter 3, verse 10, that shows us who God is. Check this out. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Amen? That's good. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. It's, I mean, look at that picture. It's, it's a startling, stunning image. Heaven opening up. You know, last night, right when I was preaching this, a light bulb exploded above. And a young woman right here screamed. And I was kind of hoping it would happen again. Because <laughs> then I, I worked on that. Because I said, look, it's coming from the right direction. He says, and I'll pour down. And I, I, I just worked on that. That was, a, that was a moment. So, yeah, God is good. And, and this brings us to the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi 4. And I, I don't survive this last chapter. It's only six verses. It's short, and it feels like it's been shortened. And in these verses, you got judgment and, and mercy and warnings and preparation and promises. It's the last word from heaven for 400 years. Each verse is worth looking at for a, a bit. So, for behold, the day is coming, a burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So there is the, the judgment. We're used to this now in reading the minor prophets. We're used to the feel of it. We're also used to uh, working with our faith and realizing Jesus experienced this too. He experienced this. And what's the result of him doing this for us? Look at verse 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Another amazing image. Just look at that. Some of you have not done any leaping for years, have you? And I'm going to tell you now, please do not leap anywhere on the property of Goodwill Church. <laughs> Those of you who have not been leaping for a while, go ahead and go home and make sure there's somebody nearby with a cell phone. I could dial 911, right? Look at this. It's just the, the leaping, like leaping for joy because of what Jesus has done for us. This long, 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 long night of tears ends with joy that comes in the morning. Joy. And the next verse is part of joy too. And keep in mind who this is written to originally. Broken people. People who have been oppressed. Militarily oppressed for generations. So this is part of the good news too. It may not 
resonate that way with you or me because of our context and our culture. But, well, it's human history. So, to that we would just say, well, wait. (laughs) Wait. Verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Then we have verses 4 and 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, the Ten Commandments. Remember that. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus told us what this verse means. He said who this is. He said this is John the Baptist. Case closed. And that brings us to the last verse of the last book of the Old Testament. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Ah, the verse that always gets me. Yeah, if you know my personal story, you might know why, but it gets me because this is what God does. He, he brings us back. Remember what I talked about divorce? The opposite of divorce. He brings us back. Return our hearts to each other as he returns us to him, as our hearts return to him. And then that, that last little phrase, it seems, seems harsh, doesn't it? Lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. If you have just a regular ESV with no notes, nothing, just a plain old ESV, you'll see a little text note there. And you can read below how this, this, this Hebrew, uh, the, the, the words in Hebrew here are related to a devoted one, devotion. And that is a word related to sacrifice. So it means sacrifice. There's going to be sacrifice. And here we realize that Jesus took this strike. He was stricken. And it was a decree of utter destruction. He experienced more destruction in his body than all of humanity for all of history. We can't imagine this. We can't picture this. We can't hold the thought in our minds. But that's what we're told. So in the end, All this points to the message of God through the minor prophets. Return to me. That's your picture on the poster stapled to the telephone pole by the traffic light. Instead of lost dog, it says lost person. Or or in Malachi, it says lost priest, lost husband, lost child of God. Yet because God created and remains in charge of the ultimate and eternal lost and found He calls you by name to return to him. He calls you by name, and he won't fail. And and here's what that means. He loves you. God loves you. Most of us hear that, and we we push away at least part of it. Most of the time we do that. Because if you were really to experience the truth of these words and know what they mean, they'd just knock you flat. They'd knock you over. And we see through the existence of the Bible, as well as the content of the Bible, that God wants you. He's drawing you. He's calling you. He's making a way where there is no way so you can come back to him. And, and there's another thought that we resist. No one wants me. I don't even want me. God wants me. 
God chooses you. There's the crisis. Oh, we all get there. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm in. I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm a real believer. I don't know if he's chosen me. I don't know. Somehow, some way, we all get to that place, and it's a required place to be. It's like the person who needs surgery, doesn't want surgery, and now surgery's scheduled, going in for it. Spiritual surgery. And you come out the other end knowing that God is faithful. He loves you. He wants you. He chooses you. You know, every once in a while, you, online especially, can see the, the part two of a lost dog's story. There's that same poster, you know, that, the same image, lost dog, same sad picture of the lost doggy, except pasted over the front of it is this one word in, in big font, found. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness, for the truth of your gospel. Thank you for what you did for us on the cross. Thank you that you love us, that you want us. You call us to yourself because you choose us. These are tremendous thoughts, hard to hold in our minds. Our hearts resist. We're frightened, we're unsure, and we're weak. You are none of these things. Thank you for who you are. Lord, if anyone here feels far from you, distant from you still, remind them that you have not left them. And you're right here, right now. Return to me, you say. Well, let it be so that each one of us says in our hearts, right here and right now, yes, Lord. Yes, here I come. In your name, Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. I invite you to rise. Let's sing. Let's worship him. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.